HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thumbs up from Liz over there in the booth, which means it's time to start. Welcome, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a lovely day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You are listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Each week on The Farm Report this season, we are exploring the the numbers, the quantitative space of what makes our food production system work and or not work. Off air, I am the executive director of the Heritage Radio Network, and every October, I help run the Goattober, the No Goat Left Behind project with Heritage Foods USA, so definitely check out some goat this October. Today, we are going to be exploring the ever-exciting, varied, historic um, world of grains, and we are joined, um, we have back in the studio once again, Amber Lamke. Amber is the president and owner of Maine Grains at the Somerset Gristmill. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Erin. Um, in addition to Amber, we have some folks from her team, and um, Eric Levine, who's the head miller. Eric, welcome. Thank you. And Matthew Dubois, who is the owner-operator of The Bankery. Now, The Bankery is a, a, a bakery in a, in a um, wow, I'm getting stuck on the bees here, a bakery in an old bank. That's right? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. And you are located just like steps from the grist mill right that's convenient very <laughs> does that mean that uh you, you know you just pop over with your wheelbarrow and like load up with grains whenever you want it's a very like medieval situation <laughs> pretty much uh, pretty much awesome um well i wanted to kind of jump off um you know we of course at the heritage radio network have been following the grain conversation um, in particular, through the leadership of June Russell, who ro- runs the Green Markets Regional Grains Project, um, something we find kind of super interesting and critical to so many different spaces in the food world. Um, and, you know, scrolling through Twitter yesterday, I came upon a tweet from uh, someone who, who tweets under the name Shit Food Blogger. And, and the, they were putting out 52 weeks of it's like an editorial calendar for... Um, for food magazines or food publications. And their suggestion for week number 38 was Ancient Grains Week. And I was like, oh, sweet, Ancient Grains. I love it. Um, And then they went on to say, readership plummets, editors and writers are fired, food journalism dies, the freaka remains. Um, (laughs) And I was like, damn, that is harsh. But what it made me wonder is... When we're talking, you know, this grain conversation, um, you know, is it a darling of food writers right now? Is it having a moment and is that not translating to the public consumption? Are grains like sexy or not sexy? Um, And and when we think about uh, food writing and food media in general, 
really kind of like what's its role and how does it actually impact what's happening for uh, producers and people running the infrastructure that makes these things work like you do, Amber. So I wanted to get a little bit kind of your your take on that, your take on the role that media has been playing in supporting the work that you guys do. That's a really great question, um, and I'm happy to address it. I, I think grains are sexy right now, and part of that is uh, coming from the fact that, I mean, I know I had a realization about 10 years ago that folks that were interested in eating local foods and adopting these 100-mile diets and local vor challenges, um, I remember reading the rules of my area local vor challenge, and you had your wild cards, and your wild cards might be olive oil, Salt, lemons, grains, ah. and you know, I remember reading. Well, why is that? Why why are grains a wild card? We used to grow lots of grains in these areas, and so you know, that's one of the things that's prompting thinking. And uh, so, so I think it's new to the consciousness of folks that care about where their food comes from that grains could come from their region too. So that's cool. Um, I do think that we will know a lot more about grains and health and changes to um, plant varieties over the last 50 years as the science gets better. And honestly, the science is just still out. So there's a lot of speculating going on with ancient grains and modern grains and plant breeding and lots of misconceptions right now that are that are uh, well making it confusing i think for 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 consumers we are going to be joined in the second half of the show by amy halloran to talk a little bit about her new book the new bread basket um great resources for folks who are interested in kind of understanding uh what's happening in the grave movement a little bit more broadly um but for folks who maybe aren't familiar with main grains maybe give us the elevator version i mean i enjoy your delicious oatmeal so that's mostly how i interact with you guys <laughs> but for folks who haven't yet had the pleasure um, what should they know about main grains Sure, thanks. Um, I think it's important to say that uh, our mill has been open for about three years now, but we've been in the research and development and business planning stage since about 2007. I'm not a farmer. Um, I did not know much about grains um, prior to starting this project, and I'd never owned my own business. Really, this project for so us... you're crazy. I'm crazy. <laughs> but uh, uh, in, our, in our neck of the woods, uh, Skowhegan's smack dab in the center of the state, where we've lost a lot of our shoe mills and paper mills and former grist mills that used to employ people. So I come to this work through first through community revitalization and trying to think about what are the next things that will employ people and where are the leakages happening happening in our rural communities um, for gainful employment. I was tapped in 2007 um, to help organize a conference called the Needing Conference, K-N-E-A-D. And that started as a gathering of farmers, millers, bakers, wood-fired oven builders, anyone in that what I call the grains cluster, um, the cluster of goods and services necessary for a local grain economy to thrive. And we wanted to bring people together from across the country to talk about what it would take to reinvigorate our local grain economy. So that's how I come to this conversation is first as an organizer and someone who's curious um, and someone who cares about the revitalization of my small town of 9,000 people. Um, we started this mill um, in part inspired by the Needing Conference and in recognition that the lack of infrastructure is part of why we don't have local flour and local oats and local grains anymore. Um, um, lest people uh, question um, uh, the kind of hip or sexy nature of grains right now, it's probably important for you to know that we come from a community where 51% of our population qualifies for federal food assistance. So we are as much concerned about what local folks um, are able to eat and have access to in our area as we are about um, you know, serving the popular nature of grains right now. That makes a lot of sense. Eric, did you have a gristmill experience? I had no experience coming into this. You guys were a powerhouse team starting it out the gate. <laughs> um, so where where did you learn? How did you get oriented? I started out as a volunteer for our farm-to-table cafe that's attached to the grist mill. And um, just through connections, I got hooked up with Amber and was offered a job. And uh, I love doing it. I think it's great. 
So for folks who've maybe never, like myself, been to a mill, can you maybe just describe it a little bit? Like if I walked up, like what am I, what would I be looking at? What, what do you see there? You would see a lot of equipment that you have no idea what it does. Figured. Is it loud? Uh, it is very loud, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we wear um, a lot of protective uh, face masks and air protection. And everything is shoots and ladders. You'll see uh, everything is gravity fed. So you'll see things going up. You'll see things coming down. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Amber, how many different types of grains are you processing? Right now. Is that the right word? Processing? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, we have doubled the number of farmers we've been working with every year that we've been in operation. So we're in our third year and the variety of grains is increasing all the time. So we process a lot of hard red spring wheat, a lot of oats. Uh, gaining is rye. We also have buckwheat, and for the first year this year, we have spelt. We're bringing in some open pollinated flint corn uh, from nearby Rhode Island, and a few other um, things that are voids that we can't yet find in Maine. So uh, our diversity is increasing all the time, and it's very exciting. I did fail to mention that. I thought maybe Eric would say this, but. Um, one of the quirkier natures of our project is that we, uh, in order to kill a lot of birds with one stone, we decided to situate this new mill in a former Victorian jailhouse in our downtown. So a bank and a jail, <laughs> so, creating um, bre- bre- the innovation of bread. And I think in a really interesting way, speaks to kind of what you were bringing up before around re- revitalizations of small towns. I yes. Mean, yeah. Um, uh, never in a million years would I have thought that a jailhouse would make a good mill. But as it turns out, there were four stories in the tallest section of the building. Um, that's very advantageous in milling because you can move grains to the top level and then gravity feed from the top down through your milling equipment. Uh, the building is one of these what you might call white elephant buildings in your community where it was due to go vacant. Nobody knew what was going to happen to it. Heck, it had a fully functional commercial kitchen, and a lot of our farmers in our community wanted access to it for food processing. Um, we were able to get this 14,000-square-foot building for $65,000 and um, proceeded to raise a lot of money to do the renovation. So it's been, um, it is uniquely well-served for us, not to mention that the th- three foot thick concrete cinder block walls are pretty soundproof so we can make a whole lot of noise on the inside of the building and you don't hear a thing on the street um matt is that similar for the the bread baking operation being situated in a former bank what are the pros and cons there some of the pros um well we we opened up um the the bakery shortly before the mill opened um and turn the, the the vaults into our walk-in coolers. It's an open concept retail establishment with some with a wholesale arm to our business. Um, but you walk in, you can see us bake, you can see the vault doors, you can kind of get that whole bank feel about it. Um, so we try to keep the the noise down so our retail <laughs> customers <laughs> have a pleasant experience. Uh, um, well, so. You know, I'm looking at the top 10 wheat states in the U.S., um, you know, pulling from, obviously, the USDA. These are 2012 numbers. Uh, So number one, you have Kansas, two, Dakota, then it's Montana, Oklahoma, Washington, South Dakota, Idaho, Texas, kind of a surprise for me there, Minnesota, and Colorado. Um, So you're looking at bushels harvested, uh, you know, Kansas up there at the top with, uh, you know, just under 400,000. And then Colorado at number 10, uh, just under 75,000. I don't see Maine anywhere on this list. (laughs) No, in fact, um, I was surprised to learn. I took a trip to Kansas as part of my education and took a week-long flour milling course at the International Grains Program in Kansas, one of only two places in the world to still learn flour milling. And, you know, there's one day we're in lecture and the map of the wheat-producing states is, is is up on the slide, and Maine wasn't even recognized as a wheat-producing state, and I knew there was some wheat being grown in Maine. Um, so it, when asked, it was that Maine didn't register because we didn't have a 1,000 acres or more of uh, wheat in production for human consumption at that time, so we didn't even register on the map as a, as a grain-producing state. So no, we're tiny. Um, there had still historically been a lot of grains grown for livestock feed in Maine, a lot of barley and oats. Um, but grain for human consumption is fairly new, coming back into rotations. Uh, one of the inspiring statistics that 
even uh, gave me confidence to even try a mill in Maine was learning that in the 1830s, my county of Somerset County in Maine alone produced 239,000 bushels of wheat. Now, a bushel of wheat is 60 pounds, 60 pounds to the bushel. So you do the math, that's a lot of wheat back at a time where harvesting was happening by hand or with horses. Um, tremendous amount of grain. So the Northeast was actually a net exporter of grain during those years and gave me a lot of confidence that even though we might not restore to that level of production, we certainly can grow grains. And, you know, you mentioned a couple of the different types of things that are passing through your mill uh, from Maine and from the region right now. Um, Are those new farmers or are they farmers who have have been growing these products and using those things for through other outlets or is it a mix? I mean, how has the kind of um, growing ag and kept up or is catching up or is, I feel like maybe neither of those are really the right words, but how does that kind of like relationship work? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, um, there are some experienced farmers and some new farmers. That's the short answer. But the longer answer is that um, we need to be thinking about agricultural systems and their fragility based on the knowledge that is present or lost as well. So um, in our region, you still have some third-generation farmers that have some grain growing still happening on their farms where um, maybe they've lost connection to what it takes to to maintain human-grade grain. Um, So a lot of that has had to come back along with the millstones and cleaning equipment and and whatnot. So we've been very lucky to be working hand-in-hand with the university. University of Maine Cooperative Extension that has received uh, funding in order to work with farmers over the last 10 years. Um, That's been great timing for us because farmers do need some help with uh, organic systems, weed management, proper storage, how to dry grains down and hang on to them for the full year, how to transport grain and unload grain and all of those kinds of things. So it is a system and it's all interconnected. Um, In Maine, one of the 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 logical things we looked at is that our town is located in the densest belt of organic dairy farms in our state. So a lot of those farms sometimes have combines because they may have been growing corn or they may have been um, uh, planting other things. And so the infrastructure to take that leap to grains was not that hard for a dairy farmer that's already used to working with large machinery. Um, that's worked to our favor because these are the farmers that are saying, well, sure, I'll plant 30 acres of grain. I'll try it out. You know, they're not too scared by it. Um, the other thing I like to remind people is that there are a whole lot of reasons on a farm and for the sake of the soil that you might want to grow grains. Uh, harvesting the grain for food is one benefit, but having the organic straw, for example, is a huge benefit and potential cost savings for an organic dairy or livestock farmer that has to buy in organic straw right now. Um, so that's another great reason to be growing grains. Um, another is just simply that if you toil, if, if you till in the straw or the stubble, you're improving soil health and water retention and um, carbon sequestration. You know all of those things that we care about right now for the sake of the environment and the soil. Um, So, you know, again, grains are a system, and food is just one part of that. Um, So in Maine, would it be correct that uh, most most of the grain producers that you're currently working with, grain is like one segment of what they do on their farm or their property, not that maybe the primary focus? Absolutely. Right. Um, So these are folks that, uh, like I said, have animals or maybe they're organic potato growers that need a rotation with potatoes. Grains are a heavy nitrogen um, feeder. They suck up a lot of nitrogen from Mm -hmm. the soil. So they want to rotate um, year after year with legumes or other things that will fix nitrogen, clover, um, hay. You really want to see a good multi-year crop rotation on farms that are growing grains. So these are farmers that that need to be doing other things and they need to have other markets for their rotation crops as well. Um, 
we're in a major expansion right now at the mill to really upscale our oat production. Mm -hmm. We just got a USDA grant in order to purchase new equipment from Germany, which will allow us to produce about four times as many oats more efficiently than we currently can. And that's going to be a, a, a real boon for Maine farms because oats are one of these grains that actually like Maine's cool, wet climate. They're familiar to Maine farmers because they've been growing them as um, a green manure or in or as an organic weed suppressant, uh, weed management tool for a long time. So to have a market for the oats is actually of benefit to these farms. And so we're very excited to be expanding oat production in Maine. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but I, I just wondering from your time out in Kansas and then kind of rethinking through those like top 10 wheat producing states, states where they're producing such a, a high volume. Can I assume that those farmers are primarily just producing wheat that is like not part of a larger system or or is it or maybe you don't know? I'm just curious. That tends to be more of a monocropping system because it is heavily reliant on fertilizers and um, herbicides in order to manage year after year wheat, corn, soy. Okay, cool. Um, well, Matt, I, just a question for you. Um, you know, opening a bakery in a community that Amber said, uh, you know, that is what is fifty percent of the com- community is qualifies for federal food assistance. So how did you go about kind of deciding what type of bread to produce and how to price it and how to make a product that was like a good fit for where you are? We um, opened the bakery with a passion to to make everything from scratch. Um, So that's um, our business model that anything that we do uh, from start to finish, all the parts and pieces will be uh, made in-house. we do a lot of loaf-style breads that are not artisan-based um, to fit the needs of our community. People can take a anadama loaf and make a great sandwich, or hala bread um, to make French toast, things like that. Um, so we tailor our products to our a majority of our clientele. What are what are like some of your favorite breads personally to bake and make and experiment with? Um, I really like a. a, a um, a miche that we made that had uh, a dried fig in it. Um, we used the main grains, um, 86% sifted flour, um, so it had some of the bran removed. Um, it, it made a really nice, beautiful piece of bread. And are you distributing uh, outside of the bakery, or primarily people come to the bakery? Um, we do a little wholesaling through um, the bakery, um, mostly in burger buns and, and breads for restaurants. Um, but we're we're mostly a retail establishment. And are you guys the only bakery game in town, or do you got some competition up there? Um, we're pretty much the only bakery in a in a um, thirty mile radius. All right. So, <laughs> so, so you know, Matt, Matt really does walk this delicate balance of giving customers what they want in our community, which sometimes is white bread. Or, or soft loaves. Um, and on the flip side, we've been so pleasantly surprised to work with Matt at the bakery because um, there is this commitment to experimentation and a commitment to sneaking whole grains into the croissanto and sneaking whole grains into the muffins um, and making sure that, that that pleases customers at the same time. One of our last trips to New York City, uh, we, we came home and... Um, And Matt was inspired to try a bread club where it would allow them to stretch their wings a little bit, try some different breads that they might ordinarily um, not be sure if they could sell all of them. But if they had uh, committed bread club members, then they would know where that bread was going. And so that was great fun. I think it was a big success. And you plan to do that again, right? Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. I love a good bread club. Well, so a modern white flour mill can easily produce uh, around 600 tons of white flour a day. How does that compare to what you guys are doing? So 600 tons a day in a modern white flour mill, um, we, we are actually on track to, to produce 600 tons in a year. So very different scale. And um, when we set out to start our mill, we knew that we did not want to be a small little milling operation on the back corner of a barn somewhere. We knew we wanted sizable infrastructure in order to serve a region um, and be 
uh, prop, you know, be able to sustain ourselves and, and be profitable. Uh, but we are nowhere near the scale of a modern flour mill. So that comes with a lot of challenges. It has been very challenging to source equipment that is appropriately sized. Um, even New England's farm sizes are smaller, comparatively speaking, to what you're going to find in Kansas. So whereas the combines out in Kansas now are automated, can operate on GPS, they don't even need a rider in them, uh, you know, we've got 300-acre plots in in central Maine where uh, you'd never get away with a combine that large or you can't get them through the fences or, uh, you know, they, they can't turn around on the farm plot. So, uh, you know, so there are scale challenges. And um, so I would say that our mill size is unique, but we are um, thrilled to be watching some parallel projects happening across the country. There's a wonderful little mill in Arizona now. There's a great mill out in Los Angeles, of all places, um, down in North Carolina. And we all network with each other as we try to bring back a regionally scaled mill. Yeah, I remember talking with um, an organization out in Nebraska about a year ago, and they were talking about how you know farm sizes just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when a, a, a farmer would pass away, and if no one in the family wanted to take over the land, that often these farms would get bought that the adjacent farm would dig a hole, bulldoze the house and all the buildings into the hole, and then use that spot as a place to turn around their tractor. So, I mean, I think when you're just thinking about, like, kind of scale and scope and size of farms, you know, you can get really, really big, um, which um, obviously produces a ton of, you know, whatever that farm is growing, uh, but it's a very different um, type of operation really across the board. Well, man, so much to cover here. Uh, we do have to take a short station break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Amy Halloran to talk a little bit more about her new book, The New Bread Basket, and run through a little bit more grain talk. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Picking season. Join EscapeMaker.com and the New York Apple Association at the Union Square Green Market, Friday, September 18th, and Friday, October 16th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. for the 2015 Apple Palooza Games. Go to the EscapeMaker.com pop-up booth for all your regional agritourism information and a chance to play Apple-themed games like Giant Apple-themed Twister. You could win a bag of delicious apple cider donuts and fresh apple juice. Everyone will receive helpful information on where to go for pick-your-own-apples this harvest season and a fresh apple grown in New York State. There's no better time to explore outside the city Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local orchard. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Hi, this is Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. It tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MoFad Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. 
All right, we are back. I am so excited for the MoFAD exhibit. If you are in New York, check that out. If you are not, definitely visit their website, mofad.org. Lots of great recordings, courtesy of Heritage Radio Network, um, that share some of the types of conversation and innovation that's coming out of that team and things to look forward to in the future. Uh, We, of course, are continuing our conversation here in the studio looking at the wide world of grains and are joined on the line by Amy Halloran, author of The New Bread Basket. Amy, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that we were kind of touching on just before the break um, was was this kind of community exchange and, and the size of, like, the bread world. And, Amber, I was hoping maybe you could kind of orient us to... Amy, and like by way of kind of explaining when we're looking at grains and bread and information exchange, how those things kind of like happen and work and how we really look to kind of build a movement. Mm -hmm. Thank you. These regional networks are really fairly new. And it's been in the last decade that folks are retooling and trying to figure this all out. There are not many stone millers in this country anymore. There's not many organic processors anymore. So there's a there's a set of challenges that we can all support each other in addressing. So, um, you know, one of my favorite stories to this effect is, you know, we ordered this stone mill from Austria and we got it all set up in our building and placed. And the first day we ever turned it on, we had no idea what we were listening to or what the right sounds were. And so we picked up the phone and we called Dave Miller out on the West Coast in California because we knew he had one of these machines. And we held the phone to the mill and we said, Dave, does this sound right? <laughs> you know, so we're, we're doing a lot of coaching with each other in different projects. And um, I'm excited that you have Amy on the line because really no one knows the Northeast efforts better than Amy. She's been following these issues um, alongside some of these projects for the last 10 years or so. And her new book really captures um, the people involved and the movement um, so succinctly and beautifully. So that's great. Amy, why now? Like what prompted uh, the writing of this book? Well, it was for me, it was a single cookie. My husband brought me a cookie that had really, really good flavors of grains, the oats and the wheat were as loud and clear as the very good butter and chocolate. And this was from Wild Hive Farm. So it stood out so much, I knew that I had to follow it back to the field. Um, I've been a baker always, and this was so intriguing. And I was also intrigued with history, so I was wondering about the same time, why don't we make food around here anymore? Why don't we make flour around here anymore? I had run a farmer's market in Troy, New York, and so I was acquainted with everything but grains, and I began with that cookie to look in. And very early on into my investigation, I was asking people who I should talk to, and they said, oh, you have to go to the meeting conference. You have to go up to Maine, and it became this uh, this castle that I needed to see, and it really uh, fulfilled my hopes of being everything that the revival of regional grain production can be, you know, a very community-based effort, um, people relearning how to work together with these, these old tools and new, new versions of old tools and building relationships and great food. You titled the book The New Bread Basket. What is the old bread basket? <sighs> Right, right. Okay, so most of the wheat and grains we get in this country are grown in the wheat belts, um, and that's places where over the course of the 19th and early early 20th century, the production and processing of grains got centralized. Um, so everything off of the supermarket shelf is likely from... Kansas or Montana or the Dakotas, someplace that generally has dry summers and big fields the size of a lot bigger than anything we have in the Northeast. Um, So the new bread basket is really the older bread basket because people have always traveled with their grains. And, um, you know, when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, they, they tried to grow wheat. It didn't do so hot in the New England summers. 
So they ended up with rye and the resident grain, corn from Native Americans. And um, so that's what that's what a bread basket looked like then. Maine was a bread basket for the Civil War. Um, so was New York. We had bread baskets. There was an oat basket in the in Vermont in the Champlain Valley. Um, but people are now tooling up to get these bread baskets right back where they belong, I think, um, closer to the eaters and uh, closer to the millers that can make really great food. So at the, t- the, the you know, front cover of your book, you talk about grain growers, plant breeders, millers, malsters, bakers, brewers, local food activists, um, and how they're all redefining our, our daily loaf. I think one of the things that is a little hard for folks who are just bread eaters to wrap their head around is how many people are both necessary um, but also engage in the evolution of of the grain story here in the U.S. And I'm wondering for you, um, you know, from those kind of different groups, what were the big surprises for you? Like, oh, I never really, like, thought about that part or, oh, this is, like, so key. Um, what jumped out at you in your kind of research and learning that was like a little bit unexpected about the infrastructure of the bread situation. Right. Well, I think everything was a surprise because (laughs) flour is this banal, dull ingredient that sits on a supermarket shelf in a five-pound bag. The most, you know, until I started looking at this stuff, the most exciting thing I ever thought about a flour bag was that the Bronte sisters used to write tiny little stories on flour bags. I thought that was the most useful thing to know. But there's so much more. Um, I think maybe the best metaphor is that as I looked at all of this work, I I was stunned by how many people are intersecting to try to make this happen. Um, to get tomatoes from field to table is not as elaborate a process, but to get Grains growing in a place, food grade grains growing in a place where they haven't been grown in a hundred years. You need researchers looking at varieties. You need farmers to get storage, farmers to get the know-how to to grow to food grade rather than feed grade, animal feed grade. They're they're very different um, goals that you're shooting for when you're trying to grow this. It's it's a whole new world that people are trying to put together and it's i think of it as a a human muscle and um one of the great great uh people entities people slash entities is green market regional grain project i thought of them as a human muscle um trying to move this this effort to build a regional grain shed in the Northeast again. And I saw the work of places like Green Market and their collaborators, PASA in Pennsylvania, Northeast Organic Farming Association, um, Ogren, which is an independent farmer and grower research uh, network. All of these people are working together to do something that's really hard. Since since grains are a, a commodity crop, it's it's there's this price struggle, you know, to get a quality grain in in, in a locale costs so much more than than anything else. So you really need heart and soul put into it, and the people who are putting their lives and work on the line for grains are really remarkable. I um I always think about this interview we did with Jim Leahy where he was talking about you know his vision of the future of New York City was that there would be a a bakery on every corner like there is a coffee shop on every corner and that yeah. each bakery would have a bread that was grown with a specific grain and the specific type of bread for that particular bakery in the same way you have these specialty brewed coffee in the origin story. We've done such a, you know, the coffee industry has done such a really interesting job of, of telling and celebrating that story. Um, and I, I personally, in, in that future fantasy, would love to 
eat all that delicious bread. Um, one of the things I wanted to hear uh, about from both you and Amber, um, if you have thoughts, is kind of the gender issue when we're thinking about grains and, and bread baking. And um, maybe, Amy, if you can talk a little bit in a historical context of the role women like have or haven't played and then, Amber, I I'm, I'm guess I'm just wondering from you maybe a little bit more currently when you look around who's kind of like leading and shaping this movement, um, if you're seeing a gender breakdown there. But, Amy, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so I want to go back to the coffee for a second. That's a beautiful uh, metaphor. I think coffee mills are a great introduction to seeing how fresh flour really can grow fresh coffee nobody argues about anymore that it's really tasty so fresh flour people will be able to tell soon too is really great um as far as women in bread if you think about american bread we didn't so much have a tradition of the village bakery until 1920 most of our bread was made at home and then very quickly we shifted to industrial production i mean the transition was already underway but that was the delineation when we had we got more of our bread from out of the house so it it was a uh, an indoor maternal kind of thing baking bread um i think about uh you know there's a lot of women in pastry now and not so many women making bread. And I've had conversations with people talking about, well, is it just the 50-pound sacks of flour that people don't want to lift? What I don't really know how uh, it all plays out, but I'm sure I'm, I know that there are a lot of women doing a lot of the um, that muscle work I was talking about, the research and um, food activism that's making this happen. There are some real taped superheroes like June Russell at Green Market and Elizabeth Dick at Ogren and Ellie Ragosa does a lot of great seed researching and Ellen Mallory is another great seed researcher and she's up at the University of Maine and Heather Darby is at the at the University of Vermont. So there's a lot of women in sort of I, I hesitate to use the word support because I don't like the secondary sound that it gives, but there are, are women behind the scenes making the regional grain tasting happen. Yeah, that makes sense. Amber, anything you want to add there? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm thinking uh, thinking this through. All the farmers that I deal with are men at this mm -hmm. point. Um, when I went out to the Kansas course, I was the only female in the class um, and no female instructors in the world of um, milling at the International Grains Program. And yet, ironically, a lot of these mill projects that I know of across the country um, there's, you know, Nancy in Los Angeles. There's Jennifer Lapidus down in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. There's Emma Zimmerman down in Arizona. There's myself in Maine. Um, there are a lot of these milling efforts that are either being led or, or um, well, yeah, led <laughs> by yeah. women. So in some cases, they are daughters of the farmers who started them. But, um, uh, you know, Sarah Williams is, is poised to help take over the mill of her father's up in northern Maine. So, a lot of women leading the milling effort and the return to good flour. Well, yeah, definitely, uh, listeners, if you're out there and you know um, of great operations that we should be profiling here on the network or things or people we want to shout out, I, I do think um, whenever I'm like we're talking in ag agriculture and especially when you move into the production space, uh, those gender things just come up in a lot of like different and interesting ways. It's always good to get a little bit of a sense of how you know what the finger on the pulse is from where you guys sit well just about out of time here um which makes me really sad um mm -hmm. i do uh want to give the folks in the room a quick chance and maybe just a brief minute to talk a little bit about maybe one um kind of hope and dream for the future in the bread space and um amy why don't we let you start well, I would hope that everybody can taste fresh flour because once you taste it, you won't want anything else. And um, I'm going to be making pancakes at Green Market on Saturday in Union Square from 11 to 2.30 so that you can taste what an incredible food this is. Oh, yum. Um, Eric, mm -hmm. how about you uh, for, for your work? Um, 
hopes or dreams for the future, something that would make your job easier, better, more fun, or something that you want to bring to your community through the work at the mill? Uh, I bring a lot of work to the community through the mill right now. Uh, I would love to see that expand. We have a huge wood-fired pizza operation that goes on in our community. I'm proud to be a part of it, and we are uh, ever-growing, incorporating new things, um, whether it be spent grains used in the dough that the bankery makes for us using main grains, um, things like that that just keep expanding and getting bigger and bigger and bringing the community closer and closer together. That's great. awesome. Matt, how about you? Any bread projects on the horizon? We want to continue using more whole grains in our, our bakery. Um, and I think as um, we have more of a following for those types of items through our bread clubs, uh, through more education in the community, um, people more and more are moving away from the white bread um, still in our community. So I think we're giving a good push for that education, and then the, the uh, demand will follow. Awesome. And Amber, I will give you the last word. Well, I am hopeful for the continuation of this trend toward village bakeries that use local flour and expose really delicious bread uh, for their to their communities. Uh, it improves health. It improves local economies. And never fear if you're not a home baker, um, uh, as Amy will show you at the green market soon or wherever you might catch up with her. Pancakes is always a great entry point for local flour. So, um Please try that at home. Yeah, um, and then check. They can they can find you at maingrains.com, uh, like you on Facebook, um, Kneading Conference. You do have dates, right? Yes, come see us in Maine at the Kneading Conference, July 28 and 29. You can find us at kneadingconference.com. And then um, definitely check out Amy's book, The New Bread Basket. Uh, great read. It gives you a real kind of finger on the pulse of what's happening in this regional green grain movement. And like you heard earlier, really touching on all the different players in, in this really exciting space. So thank you all for joining me in the studio. It's been great to have such a full house. Thanks so thank much, Erin. Thank you. And Amy, thank, thank you so you. much for calling in. Um, awesome. Hang tight. Um, we will be back after a short break for the Escape Maker segment. This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... It is time once again for the Escape Maker segment of the Farm Report, and I'm really um, excited to be joined on the line by Steve Clark from Prospect Hill Orchard. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. So you are calling in from up in Milton, New York. Um, give us a little bit of a rundown on, on Prospect Orchards. Um, you guys raise a variety of stone fruit and apples, um, but give us a little sense of the size and scope of your operation. Okay, well, it's Prospect Hill Orchards, and that's because uh, 198 years ago, my great-great-great-grandfather moved to Prospect Hill in Milton, which is about a mile west of the Hudson. And Milton, for your listeners, is about 75 miles north of uh, Manhattan. So, uh, yes, we, we are very diversified. I have a daughter, Pam, who goes to... Uh, some of the farmers markets in New York City so for her we grow all the berries and you know some of the odd things like uh, rhubarb and quince and uh, you know there's there's even some odd apples we grow just for her but uh, we are diversified we do grow sweet and sour cherries and we have apricots and plums and peaches and prunes and nectarines and pears and apples Yum. I'm like, I'm like all of those things, all of those things. Um, well, I was taking a perusal through your um, website, and I noticed you have a quite, extension, a quite extensive section on some of your green um, farming practices. And I wanted to talk about a few in particular. I wonder if you can share with our listeners a little bit about your solar program. All right. Well, we had the opportunity uh, to put in a 42-kilowatt uh, uh, solar array, and we had a uh, storage building, a cold storage building, 
and it uses a lot of electricity, and so we were trying to uh, kind of lessen our footprint, and um, I worked with a guy by the name of uh, Bill Jordan, uh, Jordan Energy, and, you know, we were able to put together a program. This was five years ago, and... Uh, in that five-year period, the, the the cost of installing has gone down by by half. We were eight dollars a kilowatt. And I understand right now it's four dollars a kilowatt or less. Uh, so I'm sorry, not kilowatt watt. And uh, so that has come down. But yes, we uh, yeah we generate a fair amount of the electricity. Uh, you know, in the months of uh, April, May, June, July, we we you know we just don't use any electricity. You know, the storage is hardly running that anyway. But and you have a lot more sunlight. Of course, in the winter, the reverse is true. The uh, particularly this time of year, they we you know are cooling the fruit down, and uh, the sunlight is becoming less and less. Well, I think that's one of those things that uh, is easy is easy to forget if you're not like up there on the farm, but you are coming to the market regularly and you see apples as kind of one of those like staple winter crops and a big part of like what the tools that you have to make sure the apples we're getting throughout the season are kind of like crisp and delicious is the storage facility. Can you tell us a little bit about um, like what it means to store an apple? What are some of the best practices and, and what is the kind of life you can get out of an apple in storage? Well, uh, you know, the technology continually changes and improves. We have two types of storages. We have, we, ha- we have what we call air storage or 32-degree storage, and that's simply uh, refrigerating down to 32 or 34 degrees, and, you know, it's a normal atmosphere. For longer-term storage, for anything from January on, uh, we have what we call controlled atmosphere storage. And what we do is we reduce the amount of oxygen in the room to around 2.5%. We, what we do is we increase the amount of nitrogen. Nitrogen already is making up about 78% of the atmosphere anyway. So we increase that up to about 97.5%. Um, and we have the technology now. They, they actually have a compressor with a filter that segregates uh, nitrogen molecules from oxygen molecules and puts the nitrogen back in the room to bring it down to that level. And then it's a it's a airtight room. So uh, you have to monitor it because the apples, even though they're basically in hibernation, um, they still respire and they still use oxygen, so you have to constantly monitor on a daily basis to add a little oxygen, but not too much. So to kind of keep things in. And what about, I know with like some root vegetables, there's like um, arguments around whether you should wash it before you store it or wash it after you store it. Does that come into play with apples as well? No, uh, what we do is uh, we keep the humidity in the room relatively high. The refrigeration units will frost up, so they have to be defrosted. And that defrost water, I, I let it go down on the floor and, and just keep the, uh, the moisture up so the apples don't dehydrate. Now, some, some apples dehydrate much more quickly than others, Golden Delicious being a prime example of one. that they, they'll, they'll get wrinkly because they're dehydrated. They're still a decent apple, but they're just not... They don't hold the uh, turgor pressure and the firmness that, you know, you would associate with a great apple. You know, there's other apples that, uh, you know, no matter what you do to them, like, you know, Fuji's really good. Uh, you know, Rome's for all its, all its negativity is, is also a great storage apple. So, yeah, there, there, there are some differences, but, uh, you know, the, uh, you, can, you can keep those apples pretty easily into uh, April and May. Once they come out, you know, their shelf life... Is not going to remain high for a, a super long period of time, but certainly for a month or five or six weeks. So if I want to buy, uh, you know, a, a bushel of apples at their peak and take them home and store them in my fridge, um, what's, what can I expect as far as, like, prime storage time in my, like, home fridge environment? Well, I just had a guy, it's interesting you bring that up. I had a customer, and he said, you know, I still have six Johnnygolds from last year in my refrigerator, and they're still edible. Wow. So I thought that was pretty impressive. You know, I would tell you, uh, you know, put them in a they, – they can't be in a bag that doesn't breathe because they'll – apples release ethylene, and, and they will over-ripen. But, you know, you want them to stay 
moist. So you know you you know you, you know, put them in your refrigerator with maybe a wet towel over them or something like that. And uh, I think it's amazing how long some of these varieties do go. You know, the one we always suggest is Ida Red. It seems to last you know for a very long period of time and still stay in very good shape. So if you know if you uh, if you come to pick your own and you want to keep a lot of apples for a long period of time, that's one of those you should have. And you know maybe if you if you want a selection, some of the other varieties you eat them up first, and then you know just be selective in 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 what you take and how long you store it and how long you store it. Well, kind of speaking of that, uh, like the pick your own and kind of getting kind of boots on the farm. You know, there's so many great uh, orchards in in the Northeast, and I think it's really a fall tradition to to go on site and to do picking and to do picking your own. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit, like. What makes this region so great for growing apples? Well, in Milton and in the Hudson Valley in general, we have a lot of ridges, a lot of rolling hills, and they create a frost-free environment. So when the apples are in bloom in the spring, uh, they're very susceptible to freezing temperatures. And, you know, that's the one thing that, that really... We have always have consistent cropping up on these high hills. Uh, we have a great market in the New York metro area, and you know historically, <clears throat> we're on the Hudson River, and historically we were able to ship fruit overnight once they uh, uh, steamboats you know had a system. They would pick the fruit up that was picked in the morning. They would pick it up in the afternoon, deliver it to New York City that night, and would be sold the next day. And, it, you know, it doesn't get any better than that today. And that was, you know, 150 years ago. Well, I think, yeah, some things change, things change in all different directions and, and super fast, it feels like, these days. Um, one of the things that I am focusing on the Farm Report for this fall season is it's really kind of trying to drill into um, kind of the numbers. How do we kind of quantify and think about what are the critical measurements? And I'm wondering for you at Prospect Hill Orchards, what are some of those kind of um, spaces that you look to to kind of assess how things are going in a given day or season? Um, what are the ways that you kind of break that down? Well, you know, it's uh, it's like this coming weekend, and you know, we're we're ordering cider. Uh, you know, what's the weather going to be, or what is the perception of the weather? We think the weather is <laughs> going to be pretty decent, except for maybe Saturday morning up until nine or ten. Then we think after that it's going to be good. But you know, if you're going to drive for two hours and make that kind of commitment, you want to be absolutely sure. So. You know, we're, we're kind of hedging a little bit, thinking that, uh, you know, this weekend may be off a little bit. But when we're measuring it on site, you know, we look at how full is the parking lot. You know, we look at how many, how many of our buckets are out in the orchard and how many are left to go out. And then you can count the number of boxes of bags that, you know, you've gone out. And you get a pretty good idea of, of what kind of day it's going to be. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's like the weather is like such a thing. Yeah, I feel like we get a little skittish at the the, the almost any sign of rain. I'm definitely getting um, keep getting warnings on my phone about Hurricane Joaquin. Is that something that you guys are hearing anything about? <laughs> We watch the weather three times a day, guaranteed. <laughs> uh, we, we do, uh, you know, our, our opinion is that the, that the Weather Channel, they're, they're making this into a media event. And, you know, they, they like the viewership, so they, they hype it probably more than, than they should. Uh, you know, what we're seeing now, the last forecast I saw at lunchtime, uh, it, it looks to me like it's going to be more of a coastal event. Uh, you know, you may see more of, the, of it down in the city. We're going to see less of it up here. It looks like morning showers on Tuesday, and that's about it. <clears throat> so good time to, to get out of town and, and head up your way, it sounds like. Hey, this is good, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot to do up here. You know, there's pick-your-owns. Uh, we have four wineries in town. Uh, we have the walkway over the Hudson. <clears throat> there's just a lot, of, a lot of neat things to do in the area, and if you want to expand a little bit and go over to the Shawangook Mountains, you know, there's hiking trails, there's biking trails. <clears throat> the Mid-Hudson area just has a lot to do. Sold. I am sold. Well, Steve, thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you and get a little insight on what you have going on up at Prospect Hill Orchard. Well, thank you for having me on, and I hope some of your customers and my, your, 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 see your listeners will become my customers. We can do have it. a good day. We can do a trade. For folks, if you want to find out more, definitely check out their website, www.prospecthillorchards.com. 
com. Also, um, give a shout out to our sponsor, Escape Maker. Um, they do all the work uh, for you as far as putting together an itinerary if you're not really sure where to go, but you have a time frame, you have a distance, you have a budget, they can help you pick the right trip for you. And um, maybe Prospect Hill Orchards will be on that trip. Um, definitely visit them there, escapemaker.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Farm Report, a jam-packed show today, as always. Got to give a big shout-out to my engineer, Liz, uh, out there in the booth, making things run smoothly for me. And uh, once again, thanks to Escape Maker for helping us bring radio to you every week. Um, if you have not been to the New Heritage Radio Network website, what is going on? You have a phone in your hand right now. Just just check it out. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, we'd love to hear what you think about the features. Definitely check out the topics page. Um, if you're into the Farm Report, I recommend checking out the Agriculture tab and the Food Advocacy tag. Lots of good stuff in there. A chance to explore all of our amazing shows. And if you're out there listening live, hang tight. Eating Matters is coming up next. they got a great episode exploring animal welfare and food labeling. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 